Well, good morning again. Thank you for being with us today. My name is Jacob Hatfield. I'm the pastor here at Grace, and it's a joy to be able to worship together. I hope you're... I, so, <clears throat> Josh is our worship leader. Uh, Josh and I plan the months out, kind of a month at a time, for sermon text where I'm at in this and the songs. I just greatly encouraged this morning. There's a lot of common uh, theme in our worship, and we're going to see that in the text now that we're going to get into this morning. So I hope you can be encouraged by that, that the whole service is driving to a single point, which is the supremacy of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, and now his equipping of his people through this armor that we're going to look at this morning. So today, we're continuing in Ephesians chapter 6. We only have a couple more weeks left in this book, and we're going to look in detail at what the armor of God is. Paul gave us somewhat of an introduction uh, two weeks ago when we started this section, and now we're going to get into what exactly he's talking about with these six different pieces of armor or weaponry. And I want to remind you, just as Josh did this morning, that when we talk about battle, When we talk about warfare and this kind of thing, we need to remember that if you are in Christ, if you belong to Jesus and the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from your sin, we do not fight from a position of uncertainty as if everything depends upon our human exertion or our ability to wield the different weapons that God gives us. We fight, we stand from a place of certainty knowing that Jesus Christ has already done what needs to be done. So when we talk about weapons and warfare and fighting and battle, hear that as if we are defending the ground that Jesus already won by his sacrifice on the cross. And now it's not that we're called to take more back, but we defend and we stand firm on what he has already given to us. Now, I'm a little worked up about this this morning, and I blame my Bible study guys for this. Maybe you guys don't know this, but Eric, Vern, all the guys in the study, Ron, I am so encouraged by this time. So we meet on Wednesday mornings, and this past Wednesday, we're talking about the supremacy of Jesus from Colossians 1 and from Hebrews 1. And by the time study's over and I start working on my sermon, I am fired up because of time with these brothers and time in God's word. This is all about Jesus. All of this armor, all of this preparation, there is none of it without him. And I so desperately want you to understand that the position as Christians that we are to take is not just this kind of hopeful optimism that, man, I hope this works. No, we have absolute and certain victory because of the cross of Christ. So all of this equipping, all of these things that we're to put on and take on is only because of Jesus. And I I want you to know that this morning. I want you to know that this is only possible because of Christ. So the whole service culminating in our time at the table is about Jesus and about what he has done on our behalf. So this is the message that I needed to hear and that I think you need to hear as well. So let's get into it. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6 and follow along. I'm going to start in verse 10 and we'll go from there. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray together as we begin. Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the enabling of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray now to the triune God of the Bible. Father, Son, and Spirit. And we come with thankful hearts, Lord, knowing that you have not only purchased a redemption through the cross of Christ, but you have also guaranteed a future. Keys to Zion have been given to your people through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Lord, as we consider what it means to prepare ourselves to stand firm. Would you come? Open our understanding, Lord. Open the eyes of our heart that we can see wondrous things in your law. Unless you come and and do this work, Lord, there is no hope that we can have for truly understanding your word or for applying it in helpful ways. And so I ask that you would minister through your word, your word which is firmly fixed in the heavens, the word which is eternal, Come and do the work. Pray for my own heart, Lord, that it would be changed and affected by this text. And for those in the hearing of my voice, please work in their hearts, Lord. And we ask you to do this not only for our good, but for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now many people, when when they read this section of Ephesians... They get this picture in their mind. So we're talking armor, weapons, this kind of stuff. And they get this picture of Paul sitting in prison or or maybe under house arrest. And either way, there's guards all around him. There's soldiers. And they think about him kind of looking at these soldiers. And they start to see the different things they're wearing. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing this text. And he starts to use some of this imagery in his writing to kind of help us understand. Has anyone ever heard that? Kind of some of that kind of thing? Now, I'm sure... That that's true in part, that Paul is using imagery from around him. It's what's in his immediate context. But I don't think that the Roman soldier is his prototype here, his main source of information. I think Jesus is. And I'm going to tell you why I think this. Paul's source material for all his, everything he knows about God, the law, righteousness, grace, faith, election, redemption, all those things comes from the Old Testament. That's what he had at the time. The New Testament was still being written. And so I think that when Paul is thinking about this armor, he has something in his mind, and it comes from the book of Isaiah. 
And you can just listen or turn there with me, but I want to read two texts for you from Isaiah that are very close to what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 6. And there's a reason for this, so hang with me. Listen to these two passages. Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Righteousness, this is verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So there's coming this one, this branch, this servant of the Lord that is going to gird himself with things like righteousness. A little more clearly, Isaiah chapter 59, towards the end of the book, Isaiah chapter 59 verse 14. Here's the context really quickly. God is looking at Israel, and there is no one to do justice. Things are out of control. There's no one to step in and do the right thing. No man is available. So here's what happens. Isaiah 59, 14. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the public square as an uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil or separates himself from it makes himself a victim. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So what does God do? Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Sound familiar? Sound like the same language Paul is using in Ephesians 6? It is. And this is where I believe he's drawing from. This armor that Paul commends to us now to put on in Ephesians 6 not only comes from God, it is the armor of God, but it is, according to the Old Testament, the same armor that the servant of the Lord, the branch, the divine warrior, who we know to be who Jesus put on. So this armor is not just Paul looking at the guards around him and saying, oh, I think I can use that. This is Christ setting the example for how to put on and prepare for what you need. This is all about Jesus. Now, as we get into the text, we see in verse 13, and this is back in Ephesians 6 now, our standing firm is the goal or the desired outcome of Paul's preparatory efforts here okay he says that we should take up the whole armor of God meaning that we should not neglect any of the provisions that God has made for us to stand firm right there's a completeness I think that Paul is driving at here twice in this passage verse 10 and verse 13 he talks about the whole armor of God If we forget or neglect different areas of preparation, or if we put on an incomplete set of armor, let's say, oh, I only need the shield or the shoes or something like that, you're going to fall. There is a reason why there are all six of these pieces of armor that Paul is going to talk about, because we need complete preparation and complete protection. 
This is so that we will be able to stand in the evil day. Now, what is the evil day? This is not the main point, but I just thought it was interesting. Earlier, Paul is talking about the fact that the days, plural, are evil. This refers to the ethos or the nature of the world around us. But here he uses day singularly. Now, what it does not mean is Paul is not referring to the day of the Lord. Okay, Sometimes he talks about the day of the Lord in reference to the future eschatological coming of Christ. We don't need to be strengthened to stand during that day. We're going to fall to our knees and worship before Christ. That's not what he's talking about. I think he's just talking about a time of unique or special pressure or persecution that is going to come to these churches as a result of them living out the gospel that he is sharing with them in this book. When they put this armor on, when they do what he's calling them to do, there is going to be pushback, persecution, pressure. And he's saying, when that day comes, you need to stand. And the way that you do that is by putting on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, he says, And having done all, to stand firm. We should see this as preparation. We are being prepared and taking advantage of the various means of protection that God gives us through his word, through his spirit. I think it's really important that we understand, I'm going to talk about this uh, in a few moments, but it's so important that we are ready before you get yourself in a situation where you need this kind of protection, this kind of equipping. You know as well as I do, at least I think you do, that when you're in the middle of a struggle, that's the wrong time to determine kind of what you're going to do. You need to know ahead of time how you're going to respond to different things. So when Paul uses these uh, preparatory words, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, his point is that we need to be ready. We need to be prepared so that you don't end up making some kind of a snap decision right in the middle of what you're doing, but that you are totally aware, you have your head on a swivel, and you know what's coming. He is preparing us through this armor. I think what he's saying here about preparing to stand firm, I mean, did you notice that in this whole text? If you read from 10 to 14, 15, stand, withstand, four times, that's the emphasis of this passage, right? He wants this firmness, and this is similar to what he said in chapter 4. If you remember this from chapter 4, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ gave to the church as gifts uh, pastors, shepherds, evangelists, teachers, prophets, remember that text? And the point of those gifts was what? Chapter 4, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by every wave or wind of doctrine, or carried around by human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes. So rather than being tossed about, Paul wants us to stand firm. See the difference? Tossed about, firm. And the, the preparation that we're getting here through this armor is so that we will stand. You with me so far? Successful resistance to the attacks and the schemes of our enemy, the devil, requires that we draw on the resources that God has provided for us. Not just that you kind of go to the spiritual gym and work out and kind of heighten your senses and all this. No, you need God's resources. And so that's what we're going to get into now. Let's look at these different pieces of armor, starting in verse 14. Paul says, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. 
So the first of these six weapons that Paul talks about is truth. And we need to see the putting on of truth, the the strapping on or girding on, maybe your translation says, that is the means by which we are able to stand. So you could read it, stand because you have put on truth, or stand because you strapped on the belt of truth. See what I'm saying? These are, it's the means by which you stand firm, is putting this truth on. Now notice that Paul doesn't tell us to just find truth somewhere inside of yourself. He doesn't say, discover what you think is true and, and wrap that around you. I think there's, there's significance to the fact that we are putting on something that previously was not on you. What's the implication to that? That the truth comes from outside of your mind or my mind. It is God's truth, and we are to put it on, not make up whatever we think is true or go with whatever our culture is telling us is truth. And here's, here's why I think that. There's, there's been a significant amount of discussion as to what Paul means here by the word truth. Is he talking about some objective truth, like as is contained in the, in the gospel? Is he talking about more subjective truth that we live out as a result of that gospel? What's, what's he getting at here? Well, earlier in chapter 1, we find a lot of help. And it's really helpful for you to remember that the same guy who wrote chapter 6 wrote chapter 1. So we can go back and forth and we can kind of figure out what Paul is talking about. So chapter 1, verse 13, if you remember this, we've gone back here a lot. He refers to the gospel as the word of truth. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So then, when we see him refer to truth later in the book, we don't have to wonder. Oh, what's he talking about? Is this, is this up to me? Is this No. It's the gospel. It's the entire message of the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do we answer the question then? What's he talking about? I mean, we can say, well, it's the gospel. But what do we mean when he says this in verse 14? I think that the truth that Paul is talking about, the the thing that we are to put on, is both the content and the outcome of the gospel. So this truth is the content, meaning it is the gospel of truth. It contains objectively true information that is true whether you feel like it's true or not. And it should shape the outcome of your life such that the way that you live now is marked by and shaped by truth. In other words, it is the fixed reality. Truth is a fixed reality that God has communicated to us through the gospel and it is the outcome or result of hearing that message, believing it by faith, and living it out. Paul has been calling us through this whole letter to live out the truth of the gospel. Right? This should not be unfamiliar to us. Chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. Now, he only commands them to live this way after They have heard, believed in, and received the gospel. That's why I can say, I think with a level of confidence, that the truth is the content and the outcome of the gospel message. We should be a people of truth. 
Paul expects that an encounter with the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, will lead to truthful living. And not only that, but he says that this kind of truth, when we put it on, will enable you to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is a liar. Jesus said there is no truth in him. And the only thing that will combat those lies is truth. Light push back darkness. Darkness doesn't push back darkness. Therefore, we are called as Christians to put on truth, which is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now look again at verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is the next weapon in the believer's arsenal. So what does it mean for us to put on righteousness? Well, let's start by understanding what Paul means when he uses this word in Ephesians chapter 6. Sometimes when we talk about righteousness, we can mean right doing. We can mean the the actions and the motivations that flow out of a heart transformed by the gospel. This word is used by Jesus in this way. Uh, For example, Matthew chapter 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. He's talking about the works, the things that you do. But righteousness can also mean what we are given by the merit of Jesus Christ at the moment of conversion. Paul uses the word this way also several times. Let me give you two examples and I'll explain why I use these. Romans chapter 5 verse 17. Paul says, for if because of one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign with Christ. Well, that's not referring to works. He's not saying, well, those who receive good works. He's talking about something else. Again, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that I would be found in him, this is verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In both of those texts, from Romans 5 and from Philippians chapter 3, righteousness is not the external right doing, but it is the right standing. It is the counting of ourselves as righteous because of what Christ has done. We talk about this quite often, that not only did Jesus die to pay the price for your sin, but he lived so that you could be counted righteous before God. And that, I think, is what Paul is more talking about here in Ephesians chapter 6. This is also what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5. When he says, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is something that we are given, and this is what I believe Paul is talking about here. I think that what he's getting at is by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, the Christian is reminded that the righteousness we need and the righteousness that God requires does not come from us but it comes through Christ. Similar to what I said about the truth, that we put it on because it was not previously on us, the righteousness is also clothing or covering us from somebody else. 
It comes from outside of us. When we continually put on the righteousness of Jesus, we will be protected from the attacks and the advances of the devil. But how does that work? How does the righteousness of Jesus protect us against that? Well, if you think about the function of a breastplate, what does that do? It protects the vitals, the the main kind of core of a person. If you get an arrow in the arm, it's going to really stink, but you're probably going to live. You get an arrow in the heart, that's a much different matter. That's fatal. So this is a protective uh, layer, so to speak. When he commands us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, he is saying that we need a protection, a covering that we do not have without it. Okay, like I said, this is in the whole armor conversation, that we need every piece of this. If you don't have this, you are open and susceptible. The same righteousness that clothes us at conversion and shields us from the wrath of God will also be the protection and shield from the attacks of our enemy. So Paul says, put it on. And when we put it on, I I just see this more as an understanding of what has already been done to us. Because you think about this, if if I'm right, if the righteousness Paul is talking about is what Christ earned for us and gave to us at the moment of conversion, how do we continually put it on if we already have it? Anyone want to answer? This is to remind us. That what we desperately need in terms of clothing and right standing before God and also protection comes not from yourself but from Christ. So Paul says continually put that on and be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Lastly, look now at verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I want you to notice something that I thought was kind of interesting. We're going to have a little grammar lesson here real quick. Look at the verb tenses in verses 14 and 15. Having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on the readiness of the gospel. What are those? Those are past tense, right? That this Paul is saying this has already happened. These are preparatory commands that Paul assumes are already going to be done before we get into the moment of battle. Next week, the verb tenses change. When we come back and we keep going in this text, it's going to be that we are to presently, in the moment, right now, take up the shield of faith, take up the sword, take up the helmet. See the difference? That's why I'm seeing these verses as preparation. In Paul's mind, this has already happened. The belt of truth The breastplate of righteousness and the shoes are preparatory measures to get you ready for what you will inevitably face in your life. So this third form of preparation that Paul advises believers to make is to ready themselves to share the gospel which contains the message of peace. Now I don't think there's a Tremendous amount of significance with the shoes as the image here. Right? I think Paul's main focal point is not so much the metaphor, but what it contains. Namely, the the gospel. And notice also that he doesn't simply say, and put on the gospel. Would that be wrong to say? Well, no, of course not. 
But that's not what he says. He says, put on the readiness, the preparedness, the anticipation for use. That's really what he's talking about. That we ought to be ready to always share the gospel. Now, it might seem strange to you that in the middle of this context, when Paul is talking about war, battle, armor, weapons, this kind of stuff, there's a message of peace right smack in the middle of that. Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You see, Paul knows, and I hope that you know, that the only true and decisive and effective weapon that can be used in the fight against our enemy, the devil, is the gospel. That's it. I'm not trying to minimize everything else that he's talking about here. It's not that this is kind of the ultimate and only thing that matters. But it is the thing that will triumph over the devil. This gospel of peace. Satan hates peace. He would rather have chaos, confusion, discord, disunity, whatever dis word you want to put in there. That's what he wants. And Paul says, no, you need to prepare yourself This is a message of peace. And not only is it a message of peace, but you need to be prepared to deliver this message of peace. So in his list of preparation, he includes this verse to remind us, I think, of God's ultimate victory over sin, over Satan, over death will not come by means of human effort. It does not depend on your ability to pick up the sword or to put on this armor. It depends upon the spread of the gospel and sinners being saved and coming into the kingdom of God. That is what will defeat Satan, not your puny human effort. This is all about Jesus and it is all about the gospel. Now, as just with before, like I said, with Paul drawing on his imagery from the Old Testament, he does this again. Listen to Isaiah 52. I hope you know this. Paul quotes this again in Romans 10. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. To put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace means in all times and in all places you are ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And that reason is the gospel. It is the message of deliverance from sin, guilt, shame. It's a message of restoration. That God in his infinite wisdom did what none of us could do. And this is the peace that we proclaim. I mean, are you ready to do this? Do you know how to do this? I mean, it's great. I I love worshiping together on Sunday. I love gathering together. But if all you do is come on a Sunday and you hear words like grace, salvation, gospel, redemption, atonement, blood, whatever, but you don't know what those mean, or you don't know how to explain that to somebody else, I've failed as a pastor. Sunday mornings are not just for you to come in and be like, oh, that was a good word. Well, praise God if it was. But this is a time for you to equip yourself 
to prepare yourself to be ready to obey this text? Could you open up your Bible with someone across from your desk and point out to them that they are unable in themselves to satisfy God's requirement? Could you show them that sin has separated them from God? Could you lead them to the book of Romans and show them that God has done what they could never do by sending his son, Jesus Christ? Can you do that? That's the preparation That's the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And you have to know it. Because that is the decisive thing that is going to push back the darkness in our world. It isn't social reform. We don't need a new political system. Well, maybe we do. We need Jesus. And we need Christians who are not afraid to say, I have a message of peace. You need it. Here's how to have it. Put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, peace with who? Peace with one another? That flows out of it. That is not the primary good of the gospel. The primary good of the gospel is that holy, separate, perfect God who was formally separated from sinful people has now been reconciled to us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Peace with God is the good news of the gospel. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul develops this a little bit farther. Ephesians 2, verse 14. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This is verse 16, perhaps the greatest verse in this section. And might reconcile us both to God through his cross, so making peace. (laughs) That is the good news of the gospel. That the cross of Christ has broken down the wall that existed because of our sin between us and God. And now anyone who will come in humble faith to God and accept the free gift of salvation can inherit eternal life along with Christ. This is a message of peace and it is what we are to be prepared to deliver. Belt of truth breastplate of Christ's righteousness, and a preparation to share the good news with those around us. Can you put those on? With God's help, you can. And I pray that you do. And I pray that you come back next week as we continue to look at what we are to do right now, this taking up of the shield and the sword and the helmet. So let's pray now as we come to the Lord's table. Father, What an amazing plan of redemption. That in your wisdom you would, this is just not how I would have chose to do things. But I'm foolish and human and weak. So I give you thanks and praise, dear Lord, that you have granted us a way of salvation and and that in that salvation you have made peace. And I pray that for each one of us here, Lord, from from the children on up to the oldest here, that you would give us this urgency 
to share the good news with those around us, that our feet would be ready to bring this good news, this gospel of peace, and that we would declare it to those that we see. Yes, to call out sin. Yes, to try to do what we can to rectify these situations, but ultimately, Lord, it is your work of redemption that people need. And so would we be quick to spread the gospel, to share the good news of hope in Christ, And would we tell people that because of faith in Jesus, we can have peace with God? So Lord, push this text deep into us now. And even as we come to the table and we celebrate the very thing that made this peace possible, remind us of the sacrifice of Christ and give us thankful hearts, I pray in his name. Amen.